Hello there, theater lovers. It's me, Bryn. Welcome to the premiere of season three. It has been a year since I started this podcast, and I am so happy that there are so many of you out there who are enjoying this little ride through theater that I've been taking you guys on for a whole year now. Thank you guys so much for all of your support. Today, we are going to be talking about Child by Abby Fenbear. But first, our announcements. So since this is the beginning of a new season and COVID pandemic is, you know, waning, waxing and waning and theater is now coming back live, there's going to be a lot less digital theater performances that I can promote because there's going to be more live stuff. And I have listeners from all around the world. I don't want to just talk about performances in New York or on the East Coast of the U.S. It seems kind of unfair. So what I am going to do is still promote those digital pieces and audio theater that I can find and that I think you guys would enjoy. But I'm thinking about adding maybe some submissions, playwriting submissions. I know a lot of you out there who listen are also playwrights, so I thought that might be something that you all would enjoy. So if you would go to the podcast's Instagram, at Playmates Podcast, there you will find a poll on our stories uh, so we can gauge interest in, in that. Do you guys want to hear submissions? Do you guys want to hear only digital theater? Do you guys want me to promote some live performances? Tell me. Go over to the Instagram and vote in the poll. So for this week, we aren't going to have any announcements because I don't know what you guys want yet. So, without any further ado, let's get into the dramaturgy for Child by Abby Fenbear. Abby Fenbear, she, her, is a writer from Detroit, Michigan. Her work celebrates empathy, living in truth, and women having lots of lines. She holds an MFA in playwriting from Boston University and a BA from NYU. Her original plays have been produced and developed by the Matrix Theater Company, Red Theater Chicago, the Great Plains Theater Conference, Boston Playwrights Theater, the Boston Theater Marathon, the No Theater, the Berkshire Playwrights Lab, the Playwrights Center of Minneapolis, and the Vagrancy. Her plays Sickle and Child were finalists for the 2016 and 2017 O'Neill National Playwrights Conferences, respectively. She's received multiple honors from the Kennedy Center American College Theater Festival, including the 2013 Mark Twain Prize for Comic Playwriting. Her short dramatic works are published in anthologies from Smith and & Krauss, and her writing has been featured online at The Toast, The Offing, HowlRound, McSweeney's, and American Theater. She also wrote and stars in the forthcoming web series Beck and Clem, a feminist time travel comedy. Fenbear is currently based in Los Angeles, where she is literary manager of the Vagrancy Theater Company. Here is a short synopsis of Child from New Play Exchange. It starts simple. A lady wants a child. Specifically an older child. Non-zero grateful, not boring, babies need not apply. She sees adoption as her chance to do some good in the world. But mercy? 
Brawn and Devil Eye, named for what they are missing, have their own ideas about what makes a family. Where lie the borders between our individual and collective selves, and what happens when they shift? Child is a highly theatrical exploration of family, conviction, and conversion. This play is experimental in form and dialogue, which I think is perfect for the subject matter and the subjects that this work is discussing. Some things just make more sense in the abstract, you know? This play talks heavily about adoption, adoption traumas, and society's definition of family. I'm going to attempt to present the most relevant facts and statistics about each one. As someone who is very much looking forward to adopting one day, this is something I want to be sure I am researching to the best of my ability. I also think it will give us a huge insight into the emotional life of these characters. So, here we go. In the United States, modern adoption laws began in 1851 in Massachusetts. Placing out or paying families to allow orphaned children to live with them began in 1868. This is most likely what led to the modern-day practice of foster parenting. It also led to the dissolution of the traditional orphanage. You know, like the ones you think of when you think about, like, the musical Annie. <laughs> According to the University of Oregon's Adoption History Timeline, it seems that the orphanage was done away with in favor of placing out somewhere around 1909-1910. This is important to note because the children in this play are in an orphanage after a vague natural disaster or storm decimated a large part of the earth. The lady notes this in the beginning of the play, stating that orphanages used to be a thing very much in the past. Here in the U.S., that is correct. As of today, it's been over 100 years since we've had anything resembling orphanages of old. However, this is not true in other countries. Since this play is written by an American, I am assuming it takes place in America, and therefore, I'm going to just continue with that history. Adoption laws have been popping up and changing ever since that day in 1851, in an effort to make sure that adopted children go to safe homes and are adopted legally and consensually. While it isn't extremely pertinent to this play, I want to note that there are arguments made by adult adoptees about the ethics of private adoption, specifically like a newborn adoption. It's much more difficult to ensure that nobody was coerced when you are effectively paying for a child. And while that does not mean that private or newborn adoptions are bad, it does mean that there is a lot more work that adoptive parents have to put in to make sure that everything is ethical and consensual. The foster care system is a little different. The government keeps records about which children cannot be reunified uh, with blood relatives and which still have a chance. The main goal of the foster care system is reunification. So above all, they are trying to put these children with blood relatives. But there are some that, for many reasons, absolutely cannot be placed with blood relatives. And these are the children that the government uh, is trying their hardest to adopt out. The situation that the children in this play are in is a lot more similar to that. Uh, from what we can assume, the children lost all of their blood relatives in this natural disaster and therefore are much like the children in the foster system today who are unable to be reunified. 
According to Evolve Treatment Centers, there are seven major issues common to most, if not all, adopted children. They are loss, rejection, guilt and shame, grief, identity, intimacy, and control and or mastery. As this particular article that I'm referencing says, there is no adoption without some sort of loss. That's just the way it is. Experts in the field say that separation from birth parents is a traumatic event, no matter how old the child or how the parents were treating the child. Even if the birth parents are extremely abusive, there is separation trauma, even though getting the child out of that situation is obviously very good. According to the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, or ACE study as it's commonly known, there are multiple different traumas a child can go through that can and do affect how they grow and change as they age. Trauma isn't just forgotten, and all children with a traumatic loss will carry it with them in some capacity. There are multiple long-term effects of dealing with childhood trauma, which all adoptees face in some capacity. They are listed as follows. Early alcohol use, illicit drug use, prescription drug misuse, alcohol use disorders, substance use disorders, suicidal ideation and or attempts, depression, risky sexual behavior, lowered IQ, impaired cognitive functions, diabetes, and heart attacks. Crazy, right? Now, not every person who experienced childhood trauma is going to have every single one of these, obviously, but they are at a higher risk for experiencing at least one of these. And because all adopted people at the very least experience the trauma from the loss of their birth parents, they are more at risk for these behaviors and health issues than perhaps the average child. In adolescence, a lot of adopted people experience persistent stress response, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's like constantly being in fight or flight. A lot of kids also experience a lack of executive function, which if you have ADHD or depression or something, you know exactly what that feels like. <laughs> For those who don't know, executive function includes working memory, impulse and thought control, and cognitive flexibility and function. So if yours doesn't work, it can lead to poor impulse control, an inability to do things even when you really want or need to, and poor memory. Adopted people are also at a higher risk for anxiety and depression. There can also be a variety of attachment issues depending on the traumas an adopted person has experienced for how long and how old they were. Every person will deal with things differently and there can be a lot of anger, grief, and frustration. It's important for everyone in the adopted person's life to support them and give them unconditional love through these challenges. This play wrangles heavily with the definitions of family. The three children, Braun, Mercy, and Devil Eye, see themselves as family from the beginning. Regardless of their lack of blood tie, they describe themselves as siblings. This is accepted by Lady, but not as readily by other characters. Uh, let's take a look at how the definition of family in society has evolved. Back in the quote-unquote old days, most Western people probably would have defined a family as a mother, father, and at least one child. This is due to a lot of factors, such as religion, patriarchy, and our lizard brain's instincts to group up, perpetuate the species, and care for anybody that shoots out of us. <laughs> 
This has been the case for hundreds of years. Lineage was important for a variety of reasons, including inheritance of land, entering the priesthood, and for royalty to pass down rule, as well as a lot of other reasons. However, the family has not always been confined to blood and lineage, and is currently evolving away from this idea. For instance, in ancient Rome, a family was anybody who lived under the same roof. This didn't only include parents and children and grandparents, etc., but any workers, friends, or slaves who lived there. This remained a normal idea in multiple cultures until fairly recently. Anybody who lived together for a large amount of time was family, even if you were paying them. Another example, in uh, multiple cultures, polygamy was acceptable and practiced, and all of the wives were family, regardless of their lack of a blood tie. They were tied through marriage. According to a study conducted by Mass Mutual of 3,000 of their customers, the biggest thing that defines a modern-day family is love. 71% said that they include close friends in their definition of family. And 65% of people under 60 who were surveyed said that their most trusted person in their life is not related to them by blood, adoption, or even marriage. This phenomenon is even more pronounced among the LGBTQIA community who overwhelmingly chose to use the expression chosen family when speaking about their definitions of family. Basically, the modern-day ideas of family are changing for a lot of reasons, and most people are coming to the conclusion that family isn't always the people who you share genes with. It's who you love and who loves you. This is basically considered fact in this play, and when one or two characters insinuate that this isn't true, it honestly feels very frustrating and upsetting. Uh, but more on that later. And now I think it's time for our reading portion. Today we have my ever-dependable friend and voice actor, Edie Pierce, here to read a monologue from Child as Lady. But first, a word from our sponsor. And now, Edie Pierce reading a monologue from Child as Lady. I did this 100% for the fodder. Let's be real, everything we do, we do 100% for the fodder. Comedians live life backwards, so my new kids are like high school students. And they're siblings, but they're not. And I'm their mom, but also a random lady that just waltzed into the orphan house one day and ordered one up. It was that insane, but worth it, right? Because now I know something I didn't know before, and I can share it with you. Laugh. It is a funny thing. My children are neither mine nor children. But what else is truer to call them than my children? They are teaching me about lies. Is laughing the truth or the lie? The wound or the salve? Ask yourselves this when you order your next drink. So like with most things we have no experience in, I was hoping. No, 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 let's be real. Assuming secretly that deep down I had a natural aptitude for it that would express itself once I began to practice. Like, oh, yeah, no, I'm just really good at parenting. Not because it's easy, but because I'm special. And I don't have to work hard because just my whole being is equipped somehow better than yours for this task. 
I am the Alpha Adopter. This delusion might be evolutionary, but also evolutionary is what I say to explain everything I don't understand, because I'm no longer religious. Uh, my kids, though. Religious as hell. Kids are all ritual, like how they get mad when things aren't fair. We brush that aside, but it's because for kids there is no logic, only routine. So for them, the routine is full of meaning. And if you get Billy a Bluetooth brush, but Sally wanted the Bluetooth brush, it's like you've pissed in their holy water. They made an order to the universe because they are powerless. Parents complain all the time. How they're slaves to their kids. They work so hard, they sacrifice. Kids come first. Everything's about those damn kids. But this is all a distraction from a truth that's too painful to talk about. Kids are powerless. Their defense is not tantrums. Their defense is ritual. Order. Justice. Let it be fair. Let it be fair. Laugh. Thank you so much, Edie, for that hilarious and yet heartfelt performance. If anyone would like to contact Edie with professional inquiries, her contact info will be in the show notes of this episode. This play definitely requires more than one reading. Uh, I discovered different things each time I read it, and it has so many things to say about the culture of children, adoption, love, and more. A lot of different things. But what really struck me about this play was the idea of death being the only real thing for these kids. The children, Mercy, Braun, and Devil Eye have been through a large amount of trauma and cling to each other for support. Because of the natural disaster they've been through and the way that, you know, adults tend to lie to children or speak to children, they have determined that the only thing that is certain, the only thing that they can rely on besides each other is death. And because of this, they create this entire culture around it. Now, there are a lot of studies out there about the culture of children, the culture of childhood, and how it's actually different from the uh, overwhelming culture of society. How children create their own games, their own rituals, their own, well, slang and language. That is true and real for, it's just for them. Like, it is theirs. And it can be really hard for an adult to understand or comprehend, even though we have obviously been children before and have experienced that. But the difference between a quote-unquote normal child's culture and the culture that these three create is that these three children have been through hell. They've been through what is vaguely described as a natural disaster that people are assuming is going to bring on or could bring on the extinction of the human race. And there are multiple references to that in the play. And I mean, one of them is the group of doctors called the Immortals who are testing longevity products and such uh, in order to make humans immortal. Hence their name, the Immortals. So we know that this world that these kids live in is really tenuous, even more tenuous than the one that we currently live in, which I know is really, really hard to imagine. But not only is this kid's world tenuous, they lost all of their blood relatives 
in this disaster. They are alone until they find each other. So when they do find each other and they have this common experience in which they experienced death so close to them, as close as it really can get to you without dying yourself, it becomes this holy thing. They form these rituals around it that a lot of the adults around them, including Lady at first, find extremely disturbing in a way, even though just reading them at least, they don't really seem scary or even really creepy. They just kind of seem sad. Like they have a red rock and they kiss it and say like, the only thing certain is death. They're like, we are a piece of a bigger whole. And they talk about their identity in a very specific way. They do not talk about their identity as individuals. They talk about their identity as a whole, as a group. They are one being in their minds, especially at the beginning of the play, when Lady has first adopted them. There's a conversation between Lady and Braun about this, where she's trying to bond with him in their garden, because he said he wanted to uh, work with her in the garden. So she takes him out there and starts to try and, you know, see what he's into, get to know him a little more, and finds that he is unable to talk about his interests or what he has experienced as an individual. He talks about himself as a part of the whole, a part of his little family, which is comprised of himself, Mercy, Devil Eye, and now Lady. This is really, really interesting because there are two separate selves that we all have, which is the individual self as well as the self that is a part of our community or our family, a part of us that is the part of the whole. These children, at least the beginning, don't see the part of themselves that is the individual because that part, honestly, it seems to me upon reading this two or three times that it's too painful for them to look at themselves as individuals because when they see themselves as individuals, they realize that they are alone. And maybe that's why they formed this little family and these rituals in the first place, to be a part of something. Because everyone needs to be a part of something. As multiple people have said across the years, no man is an island. And for these children, forming a group is survival. And these, these three all have these strengths and weaknesses that complement each other. Braun is a bit of a people pleaser, but he's very kind and smart. Devilai is very quiet and conscientious, but she can speak up for herself when necessary. And Mercy is the protector of the family. If she catches anyone messing with her siblings, she's on them like white on rice uh, in, quite frankly, a scary way. Mercy is named so because she lacks mercy. See, all these kids, like I said in the synopsis, are named for what they are missing. So mercy is missing mercy. She has none. And you can see that very clearly in her aggression. Braun is supposed to be this very skinny kid with perhaps some kind of muscular dystrophy or something like that. Um, he is very unwell. He's missing Braun. He can't physically fight for himself. However, he does make it clear, especially later on in the play, that that does not make him weak. 
which I very much enjoyed. And Devil Eye, this one is interesting, is missing an eye. Her quote-unquote devil eye. Now, trigger warning here for sexual assault. Uh, if you don't want to hear about this little bit, um, you can just skip 30 seconds, I would say. Devil Eye mentions mostly at the beginning of the play, and it's mentioned by Mercy once near to the end, that uh, Devil Eye was conceived through rape. A white man raped her mother. And when she was born, she was born with heterochromia. She had one brown eye and one blue eye. And her family cut out her blue eye because it was said to be the devil's eye. And I understood this to be because, you know, she is a black woman and her mother is a black woman and she is a black girl and her whole family is black, that this blue eye was representative of the horrible atrocity that was done to her mother, but also was this kind of superstitious thing a mark upon her so that they could not forget what this white man had done to their family. So they cut out her eye, and that is why she is placed, at least before the disaster. It seems that it's never said specifically that Devil Eye was placed in this orphanage, possibly before the natural disaster, because her family cut out her eye. <laughs> and while they had their own personal reasoning for doing so, feeling that they were protecting her. Obviously, most governments are going to take away a child from a family if you cut out their eye. Uh, so that is why she's called Devil Eye. She's missing her quote-unquote devil's eye. Like I said, we got off on a tangent here. Uh, <laughs> the culture of these children is based around death and the only real thing being death. They mention throughout the play a lot that they do not lie. And they do not like being lied to. They make that very, very clear to Lady. That they will not be lied to. And they call her out whenever they think she is being untruthful. It comes to a point in the play where the immortals, the doctors I talked about earlier, realize that these three children have somehow, even though they're not blood-related, the perfect physical genetic composition, whatever, for their human trials, for their longevity experiments. They say that they can give Braun muscles, like normal people muscles, and that he will be able to physically do normal things. They say that they can grow an eye for devil eye. And they say that their treatment can lower Mercy's aggression and give her a sense of joy. They can give the kids what they are missing. But the kids do not believe this at all. Devil Eye kind of has a breakdown and screams about how they're lying to them. And at first I wasn't sure what to make of this. Because, yeah, the whole longevity immortal thing kind of gives me the creeps because, you know, well, a lot of us kind of, it's a truth, mostly universally acknowledged that death or impermanence is what gives things meaning. So if you take that away, does your life have meaning? Does your life have meaning if it never ends? For one. So, but these kids... Death is the only real thing for them. And if you take that away, then nothing is real. If your reality gets fractured like that, of course you're going to have a breakdown. Especially because these are traumatized kids. 
their reality has already been broken down and changed so many times. So many times that they have a fervent belief and have formed rituals around, almost a religion around, this idea that death is, is it. It is the only thing that is real or that makes life real. Which is not a harmful belief in itself, but these kids cling to it. And if anything challenges it, they freak out, they break down. Which is understandable. A lot of us, even adults, <laughs> we've seen it recently. I won't mention exactly, but you know, even adults will have a breakdown if you give them facts and figures about why what they believe isn't true. But these are kids, so it's different. And these are traumatized kids. It took me a while, a few readings of this play, to get my head wrapped around what I thought Abby Fenbear was trying to say about all this, especially with the ending. In the end, Mercy kind of wants the treatment that the doctors are offering her because, well, her world is changing. Lady renamed child for what she is missing has become this integral part of their family. And she feels almost replaced because, like I said, she was the protector. And now lady or child is the protector. She's the parent. But also Mercy's aggression, her anger begins to wear on her. A lot of us who have maybe felt that understand what that means. When you feel angry for a long time, a long, long time, it gets under your skin and it it's not pleasant or comfortable. And Mercy wants to stop feeling angry. She wants to stop feeling defensive. And in the end, Child is holding her as she's breaking down and Mercy's like, I just want to be normal, basically. And Child has to explain to her that imagination is not lying. Or that imagining possibilities, seeing a future that isn't horrible, isn't lying. There's this fine line between imagination and lying that these kids aren't, un aren't able to see until the end of the play because of the way adults treat them. This might be going back, circling back on a tangent, but uh, in this play, there are, is a lullaby, there are some nursery rhymes and little children's games that are sprinkled in, mostly at the beginning, uh, that are to the tune maybe of something that we've heard before or are supposed to sound like something we've heard before. But the words aren't. <laughs> they specifically call out adults for either not telling the truth to children or for uh, skirting around things or for talking to children like they're not people, which is a big problem. Children are people, guys. Um, <laughs> and that sort of thing. Um, and I believe using this vessel of something so incredibly childlike that we can all relate to, to be like, hey, adults, kids are people. <laughs> and sometimes, yes, maybe sometimes we need to not tell the whole truth. 
because, you know, a four-year-old, a five-year-old, a two-year-old, a 10-year-old even might not always have the emotional capacity to understand a specific thing. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't tell them as much of the truth as you possibly can and treat them like a person. Because that's another trauma that I think these kids experience in the orphanage, especially. You kind of see that with how the keeper talks about them. The keeper is like the orphanage head. These kids aren't seen as people. Lady sees them as people, though. Her family, it takes a little bit longer to see them like that. Uh, her sister, especially, there's a whole confrontation um, with her sister. Her sister is actually one of the people who says that these kids aren't really your kids because you adopted them. And as someone who wants to adopt, that made me almost throw my computer because family, in my opinion, as you could probably tell in the dramaturgy section, even though I try and keep it unbiased, um, to me, family is not just the people who are connected to you by blood. They're the people who love and respect you that you love and respect back. And like I said, I want to adopt. And if anyone were to insinuate my future kids are not my kids because I didn't shoot them out, uh, I would probably kneecap them. Um, and Lady does, she gets extremely angry. She gets very upset. And the sister apologizes later and says, I can't believe I said that. That's not true. Those are your kids. Those are your kids. You care for them and you love them. You took them in. They may not call you mom. But you are, you're their mom. You are their parent. You're their guardian. You're their family. Kind of doing this in a different uh, way than I usually do. Um, I wanted to go a little more unscripted for this discussion section just because, um, well, something I want to try. Uh, but also just the subject matter of this play is extremely raw and very close to me. And I wanted to be really vulnerable and open with you guys about how it made me feel and what I think it's trying to say. And I, I hope I've done that. This play, I've only read it a few times. And the first time was only last week, but it already kind of means a lot to me. And I really want to see it on stage. For one, because it's a very ensemble driven piece, actually. And I love seeing that on stage, as you all probably have figured out by now. Um, a show is a good show, not because of one person. A show is a good show when there's a good ensemble who works together and listens to each other. And I think this play is a great way to showcase that. But number two, it also just talks about a lot of things that I think we don't discuss very openly. One is adoption. And two, like I said, the culture of children and also how trauma affects us, affects our behavior, affects how we grow up, affects our relationships, et cetera, et cetera. I feel like it's just really, really important to talk about. So thank you, Abby, for talking about it in such a beautiful play. Like I said, very experimental, abstract way that somehow reveals more than I think a quote-unquote straight traditional play would. So anyone out there who is a producer, take a look at this play. I think it is a really fantastic piece of work for one, but also 
one that says some things that need to be said and that I think will become more and more relevant uh, as things progress climate-wise and government-wise and perhaps there are more and more children who need to be adopted or more and more people consider adoption. As we said in the dramaturgy section, the concept of family is evolving. More and more people are open to adoption. I think this is something we need to put out there, you know? Also, it's just a beautiful play. Like, read it, guys. It's just really, it's just a really gorgeous play. And with that, I will leave you for this episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. As always, I am really, really psyched that we are in our third season now. It has been a year since I started this podcast. And while I don't have a thousand listeners, I have about a hundred of you out there right now across the world listening to this. And that is amazing. And I'm glad that we have this awesome little community where we can talk about work, both new and old, that talks about really important things or it's just really cool and funny and meet a bunch of playwrights who aren't cis white guys <laughs> you know just thank you all right if you want to contact the podcast and suggest any guests or plays that you would like for me to cover please email me at theplaymatespodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com or go to our website playmatespodcast.com weebly.com and fill out our Google form. We have a little suggestion form. You should see it in the tabs in the menu of our website. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram at, at Playmates Podcast. There you'll get updates about the podcast, what plays I'm covering, the playwrights or dramaturgs that I'm talking to, perhaps our voice actors, some playwriting prompts, all sorts of really cool stuff. So go ahead and give us a follow if you can. I am really excited to say that our next play will be Alternative Canon by Erin Proctor, and I will be interviewing Erin herself. I met her actually on TikTok. So if you guys are all on up in there, go follow at Goody Proctor. That is Erin's TikTok. She makes some really great content, uh, but she's not just a great content creator. She's a fantastic and funny playwright. So join us on our next episode where I'll be talking to Erin about this play where she basically takes the Old Testament and flips it on its head. Okay, guys. Can't wait to see you guys next episode. Have a good one. Bye for now. <laughs>